Welcome back to another episode of Ruby for All. And this is where I usually ask Julie what's up, but Julie has a sick child that she has to go pick up from school very last minute. So I am wishing her the best with that and good luck. <laughs> but the show must go on today because we have a guest and I want to welcome Bumi Sa to the show. You want to give a brief introduction, let the people know who you are, why you're famous? Yes. First of all, thanks for inviting me. And it's good to be here. And Julie, wishing you good luck with the sick child because I know what that is like. But to everyone else, hi, I'm Bumi. Just a quick backstory, my real story, my Ruby story. I became a web developer in 2012 when I taught myself Ruby on Rails from Coursera course. That was the education platform that was popular back then. Also like Code Schools, Rails for Zombies with Greg Pollock. And of course, the Rails tutorial by Michael Hardell. Like I did those things in succession for like two, three months and I became a web developer. And later on also like the Rails cast from Ryan Bates. But I said I became a web developer in 2012. But before that, I was already a software engineer doing low-level embedded software and firmware for implantable medical devices. I did that for six years. Nothing to do with the web. So I made an intentional transition in 2012. But before doing the low-level stuff, I went to school for and got a degree in computer science and engineering. So that part of my story is a little bit like traditional slash boring. But while I was working full-time at all of these jobs, I was always doing some sort of teaching, either being like a buddy to new hires or interns at work, or even being a TA in undergrad for my computer hardware class. So, but I didn't really realize that I liked teaching and I was doing that. It was kind of a thing I was doing on the side until a couple of years. My last couple of years when I was like looking back, I was like, yeah, it's something I've always been doing. It's like my thing that I want to do more of. So that's what I've been doing the last couple of years and currently doing even more of that with writing and trying to see if I can make teaching as one of my jobs. How's that experiment like going for you so far? Do you think you can do it? So I've studied a lot of people who have done it, specifically Chris Oliver from GoRails. And learning his story is what inspired me to even try. Okay, yes. I heard an Indie Hackers podcast about Chris exactly two years ago, I think. And before mm-hmm. that, I didn't know anything about him or GoRails. I had seen GoRails, but I didn't know anything about it. So that's what inspired me to think that I could try. There's lots of other people who are like creating content. And that word content, I have to like do a side note here. Like I had a biggest hump over getting over like the word content and being a content creator is like a thing that people call themselves. And I was like, I'm a software engineer. Like I'm not a content creator, but I think that I've gotten over that hump finally. And which is a good thing because there's lots of different ways to teach writing being one of that, which I feel like most comfortable with, but also recording screencast and recording podcasts even and doing talks. And so they're doing courses so I think I had given it a shot a couple times the last couple of years and then sort of stopped for various reasons. Like I have to get over these humps that I have. The current hump that I think I'm getting over is like charging actual money for teaching, right? Like it's something that I feel like, oh, if I just write blog posts and put it out there, there's no strings attached. You just, you know, it's there. But if I make a course and a thing, how do I charge for it? And do I charge for it? Would anybody pay for it? So I think that's the hump that I'm currently working through getting over. Could it become a job? But the fact of doing it, like if I could just do it indefinitely, 
for free and I had all the free time and I was like independently wealthy, then it's, I think I could totally do it. Like I could definitely imagine myself learning and teaching and getting deep into stuff. So I think the funny thing is that being a content creator to me and to like, especially like the generation right below me, that's what cool people do. <laughs> right. So in my brain, it's like being a content creator is cool. Why wouldn't you want to be a content creator? But I also have kind of struggled with that in the past of like, I don't consider myself to be a content creator. I'm an engineer and I like do stuff and volunteer my time and speak it wherever I can and this and that, but I'm not a content creator, but that's buffoonery because I have created a ton of content and I have put it out and I don't think it's fair to you or me to doubt yourself in that area. Be like, am I this? Am I that? Like you just listed off a ton of stuff. Also, if you're looking for a place to host a course, (laughs) podia.com. Yes. Now I can get my pat on the back later. But that's interesting that you talk about Chris's journey. So what part of Chris's story specifically kind of motivated you? So I remember I try to focus on like the beginning of people's journey because I feel like I have to start at the beginning, right? I can't start at the end. Like I have this thing where I'm like, oh, I can can imagine where I want to end up, but there's a lot of hard work to get there. So I remember something he said in the Indie Hackers interview where the very first thing that he did was he actually made a course. And he put it out there and maybe a few people bought it or no one bought it. And he was kind of discouraged, but also like he learned that might not be the format in which he wants to go about teaching. And then I think eventually like the weekly screencasts came about. And then I think he started charging for every other one. Like it was like the free a week. And then so you get people who are still along for the ride who can't pay or don't want to pay. But then you get the funnel of people coming in eventually that made me think that it's not, you just start off one day and you just start creating content and people just start liking it and following you and paying you. You have to start building reputation, building trust, and then it is a longer journey. So if you do it for six months and it's not going somewhere, it doesn't mean that, like you said at the beginning, that you might take two years. And Chris has been doing that for at this point, I think like a decade or something. And it took a long time before GoRails got to a point where it was sustainable, like full-time income. So just thinking about the beginning of the journey and being like, okay, like you have to trust the kind of the process and it takes time and keep going in that direction. So you talked about you're currently thinking through charging for content, charging for like maybe putting out lessons and charging for them. And I want to hype you up. So what's your kind of like hang up on it? Do you think? I think it's too early. And I'm not saying that because I'm trying to be like humble or something. I think that my being on the internet is like a new thing for me. Like I was working in obscurity and it was happy with it. Coworkers and I didn't go to conferences, wasn't in Twitter. So people have to like, first of all, they have to, in order to trust you, they have to know you and they have to have already gotten some benefit from you, like learned from you. And it's just too early. Like I think not enough people know me or therefore trust me or have gotten enough benefit from me. So I think... Right now, I'm not actually focused on figuring out how to charge. And right now, I'm focused on how can I keep going? Like, how can I keep learning and sharing and teaching things that are super clear and well thought out and helpful and useful and sort of practical? And how can I keep my own energy and enthusiasm levels to the point where I can keep doing that for the next months and if not years? And then it might be a right time to charge for it. Because if I do charge for something and it doesn't go anywhere, I don't want to get discouraged. And I don't think it's like one of those things where it's like all or nothing. You can ask people for feedback without charging money for it to gauge whether or not it's working, like what you're doing is working or not. 
And so I'm doing more of that, just asking feedback in my newsletter or asking questions, those kinds of things, which are small things to build towards a thing where I feel like it's like a clear sell, like, oh, okay, of course, if Umi makes a course, I'm going to buy because I've already learned stuff from her. It's not like I have to convince people to do it. I'm sort of waiting to get to that point. But at the same time, and we can talk about this later, do you have perfectionism tendencies, right? So part of it is I want to get something to a place where it feels more perfect than just kind of like ad hoc. I'm just going to throw stuff and see if it works. I like what you talked about. Like you already know that it might be discouraging if you were to put out a paid course and not enough people purchased it. This is something that I try to tell myself, but it's really hard for me to actually follow through on it. Maybe the goal for me isn't that I make money on the course. Like that's your goal. I've been trying to think about it like maybe my goal is just to put the course out. Who cares? I've had courses like cooking for years. Like I've had multiple ideas, multiple failed starts, and I'm not actively working on anything, but I'm like, they just kind of sit there on the back burner. And I'm like, maybe the goal isn't to put out an amazing course. Maybe the whole goal is just to put out something. Yes. But publishing content is hard. What have your kind of experiences been as you've started to publish more and more content? And like, how do you kind of keep that going? Yeah. So I've had these spurts of writing a bunch of blog posts and then stopping. And then I also made a bunch of screencasts and then kind of put them on a YouTube channel and never told anyone about it. Right. So I've done that over the last couple of years. And I feel like I've come to a place now where I've done enough of that. So I feel like, okay, failed at not continuing. So I'm kind of ready to just continue doing it. I think there's two things. One, like I do tend to think that it's simple in some ways in the sense that you do it. So it becomes like a habit or a routine. So even like tweeting for me, it felt so strange to do that initially, but then you just do it and you don't think about it. Okay. It's just me. I do. I tweet all the time. This is part of my routine. But if you don't do it for a year and then you do it again, like, oh, I have to say anything brilliant because I haven't tweeted it. Like you kind of like over intellectualize it. But if you just do it and you get into the habit of it, then it's become like a familiar thing that it's just something you do. So that's what I'm trying to tell myself now. But at the same time, I think the the actual fun of it is the learning for me and diving deep into stuff and then sharing it makes it feel more complete. For me, teaching or sharing, it's just like a progression of learning. Like the saying of, I think it's more like a medical thing, but like you see one and then you do one and you teach one. I think it's about like a surgical procedure, right? So it's, for me, it's you learn something, you go something, you try it out, and then you teach and explain, articulate why it works and how it works. And that's kind of a progression of your own learning. So like when I get into that, then it's easy. Like, oh, of course I'm going to share because I learned something cool. Like I want to tell people about it. But if you think about like, I'm going to make content and how do I market this content, then it becomes like, I'm not a naturally businessy person, right? So it becomes not fun. But if I'm, like, I'm, going, to t- I'm going to learn stuff and I'm going to just teach it to other people or share it, then it becomes very natural and fun. Hi there, Julie here. I would like to take a moment to thank Go Reels for sponsoring this episode. When I was first starting out, I struggled with finding up-to-date content to help me level up. Then I learned about Go Reels. Not only does Go Reels provide new screencasts weekly, they also have two fantastic instructors that break down complex topics into digestible chunks. On top of that, I really appreciate when they explain the whys behind the subject. One of my favorite walkthroughs is creating your first Ruby gem from scratch. What a great way to learn by stripping down to just the basics. If you care about leveling up as a Ruby engineer, you can't go wrong with Go Reels. Check it out at GoRails.com. 
I'm not a business person, quote unquote, but I have always had a really, I call it like a scheming mind, but business Mm -hmm. oriented is probably a better word for it. I have so many ideas for how I could monetize content. And the only reason I don't is because I know that I probably won't continue doing it long because my interests seem short. (laughs) Are you the type of person who likes to research a lot or research deeply? Research deeply, I would say. Mm. Let's just talk about your learning approach, maybe. Yeah. How do you learn? Yeah, that's a good question. So right now, I think about learning different technical things. I have these terms that I say to myself. I don't even know if those are like, there's some like pedagogical theory around those things. But like, I'm trying to become like friends with all the things versus like acquaintances. So I feel like CSS, I'm an acquaintance with. I use it. There's times where... If someone shows me a solution, oh yeah, this makes sense, but I couldn't come up with it myself. Like, how do you solve this thing in CSS, right? So we're acquaintances. I want to become better friends with CSS. So I'm going to pull out different threads. When something comes up that I need to use CSS for, which I I felt stuck on or I couldn't figure it out, I'm going to pull out that and understand the technology itself. Because someone, like some human being, created this thing called CSS and all the features multiple human beings, right? And what is in their brain that I want to transfer that into my brain? That's how I think about learning. So I like understand it from their perspective. So I get it so I can use it effectively. And then other stuff, Turbo, for example, and Hotwire right now, right? There's lots of different blog posts and YouTube videos out there which talk about here's Hotwire, it has Turbo, it has Stimulus, and Turbo has three things, it has drives and a frame and streams. And I'm like, okay, that's all good. They're all like the terms and categories, but what can it do for me? Like if I want to build like a drag and drop thing or like an infinite scroll thing, how do I go about doing that? And what of Turbo do I need to know in order to solve my problem? So I also think about things like just-in-time learning, which is if you're trying to solve a problem at work that you need to solve like for shipping a feature for a deadline. And then follow-on learning, which is, okay, I made the thing work and I solved the problem but I didn't fully understand all the stuff that I used to make it work. So save time for later to pull out those threads because you can't do it in real time when you're trying to solve a problem at work. It's like a list of things that I want to pull threads on later on. And I kind of try to make it intentional to do that. Then there's also like more like intentional learning or deliberate learning, which I would argue is not necessary or sufficient, but I do because I enjoy. By that, I mean like reading programming books and taking courses. There's lots of people who don't do any of those things and they're like very effective developers. There's people who do those things, but it's not like a sufficient part of being able to develop if you just take courses and read books. But I really enjoy reading programming books, so I do that. And and then it ties in later where you don't remember everything you read, but you do remember that you learned something about it. So when like a problem arises, you can go back to and refer to it and load that back into your memory. Okay, I learned this thing, which I had forgotten, but I can use it now. Yeah, I've talked about that in the past and the connection that's important. Like you may not remember the specificity of whatever it is, but if you can remember like the connection that you had to it, then you can find your way back. Yeah, you just brought up so many interesting things. I feel like you and I, by the way, would be best friends. So I'm just going <laughs> to throw that out there. So when it comes to teaching, though, what about teaching do you enjoy? Yeah, that's a good question. One specific thing that comes to mind is when you explain something to someone or you say something in the right way and like that person is like, oh, now I see, now I get it. And you see like that connection happening in their brain. I enjoy giving other people that feeling, but that's really like satisfying. It's fun. And I've been doing, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but I signed up for this Indie Hacker platform for mentorship. And so I've been doing this one-on-one like 
paid long-term mentorship for like last three years. And I have two or three students at a time and, and I meet with them every week. And some of them are like early careers. Some of them are kind of like more in the middle. And I was trying to figure out like, why do I keep doing that? There's lots of projects or initiatives that I've started that I quit and I stopped doing. But why do I keep doing that thing specifically? And I think it's because of that. There's just a real person that I'm talking one-on-one with and they're talking about like a real question they have at work or in their personal project they're building. And I can help them think through something or ask them questions to help them feel more confident, understand something. And that's a rewarding feeling. It's just like, I also feel like I didn't really have that when I was starting out. I missed out. Like I never had anybody who was like a mentor or who took me under their wing. So I feel like that's super useful. I didn't realize that. But once I did have it later in my career, I was like, oh yeah, this is a useful thing that if I could do it, I think I should do that. So I think that's one thing. The other thing, like I mentioned earlier about teaching, it's the completion of learning for me. And I really, really, really like learning. If I could make learning my full-time job and just learn stuff the rest of my life, not just programming stuff, but like all kinds of stuff in the world to learn, I think I'd be a happy camper. Like I could just learn. So I think teaching is kind of a completion of learning. Like if I do learn just for the sake of learning, I do feel like I'm being self-indulgent. Like I'm not giving back something, but like teaching makes me okay to be like learning more stuff. So I think I'm teaching stuff so I can learn stuff. I think those are like the two kind of uh, ways I think about teaching and why I like it. I experience joy when I see other people experience joy. That's kind of what I thought about when you were saying that. That's why I mentor and why I do the things I do because when they succeed, I feel like I've succeeded. Like I feel that. And when they're failing, I feel that too. And it sounds like you're in the same boat where there's so much going on. We have a lot of things in the pot. Like we start and stop projects all the time. It's those emotional connections to like the other people. I feel like that like kind of will keep me doing the mentorship for, for the foreseeable future. So I totally understand where you're coming for with that. Here's my problem though. I love to learn. I'm just naturally curious, but I am different from you in that I'm not a deep learner. I like to learn a lot. And my problem is that I like to teach as well. And I like the feeling of sharing the things I've learned with others. But I often get stuck somewhere there in the middle between I find something really cool. I want to share it. But then I kind of, I don't know. I don't know if it's like perfectionism or I don't know Mm -hmm. where really the blocker is for me to like, I have this content. I could share it with people, but I just don't. So you mentioned earlier about there's some kind of like half completed courses that you have and other content that you want to share, but you don't. And for you, it's not really about making it like a job or making money from it. It's more just what if like, just put it out there. Can you get over that hurdle of just putting it out there? So what do you think is it like perfectionism is a word, but I think for me, it means certain things. How am I a perfectionist? Uh, What does it mean for you? Like, how are you a perfectionist and what's stopping you? So here's what I know. I know that I go across the web and read tons of stuff. And there are people who will put three or four sentences and publish as a blog post on their website. And maybe I find it insightful. Maybe I don't. But I respect the people that do that a lot. Just share. I really like the indie web community and the microblogging communities and that kind of idea. Because I like the idea of just continuing to share and not being beholden to some sort of standard. 
Now, the problem is that I was raised in the American school system. So my entire brain is I can't write something that isn't complete, that isn't completely Mm -hmm. structured, that doesn't have images, that doesn't have conclusion and introduction, like an emotional grappling hook and then the content and all this stuff. Like, And I know that it doesn't have to be that. But for some reason, I have a standard for myself that I do not hold other people to which is kind of an across the board issue. But I think it kind of means it's kind of perfectionism. So I feel you. I think that is definitely something that's part of perfectionism. For me, it's not so much about the writing, how it has to be complete with an introduction and the conclusion and like the end. For me, it's like it needs to be thought through, well thought out Mm. and thorough and deep in like the information that I'm conveying. It can be like surface level or it can be like half-assed in any way. Um, if someone tries the examples, the code snippets I put, like they need to work. There cannot be any typos. There cannot be any, right? So I think that that's a standard that I, I think that's okay to hold myself to. I don't want to go below that level, right? At the same time, I feel the same way as you. If I do find someone else's blog post and they have a code snippet and they have a typo, I'm like, okay, it's fine. Move on. I just fix it and I move on and I don't hold them to some kind of like standard. Oh my God. There is a horrible person. No, so it is different in that sense. But for me, it takes a lot of time to write something that I think is good. And partly that's probably why I haven't gotten to other forms of media like screencast and like recording, because that will take me even longer. Like I already feel comfortable with writing, but it would take me even longer to make a good screencast. Actually, I did a guest screencast for GoRails. And it took me, I thought it would take me a while, but it took me way longer than I thought it would take. Like the actual content, I had it down, but it was like the delivery of it and like the code examples, all that takes a while, right? So so I think that in order to do more of it, I and you, we do have to figure out like how to lower the bar and take the pressure off in some aspect, but not in all. I would not feel good sharing something that was like incorrect, like factually incorrect. But that might happen. And if it does, it won't be the end of the world. And so I have to take the pressure off in that sense to create more stuff that's out there. And one way to do that for me is just to treat myself as I treat others. Like I'm just putting something out there. I'm not offended if there's a typo. It's like, it's okay. So kind of doing it that way. But basically for you, I think it sounds like there isn't really anything stopping you other than put something out there that you think is like the usefulest thing that you can share. I think you already do share stuff on Twitter, like that format. So that could be fine. It doesn't have to be a well-formatted like blog post, but like sharing more stuff like that. That's shorter. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. The number one reason startups fail is that they run out of money. There are so many ways for startups to lose money. Downtime shouldn't be one. Recent studies found that downtime can cost $427 per minute for small businesses and up to $9,000 per minute for medium-sized businesses. That's every single minute. A monthly subscription with Honey Badger helps you prevent costly downtime by giving you all the monitoring you need in one easy-to-use platform so you can quickly understand what's going on and how to fix it, which helps you stay in business. Best of all, Honey Badger is free for small teams and setup takes as little as five minutes. Get started today at honeybadger.io. That's www.honeybadger.io. What's your favorite type of medium to kind of use 
What are you enjoying the most? Is it like video? Is it written? Is it audio? What do you enjoy creating the most? I'm most comfortable writing text with code examples. So that's currently what my newsletter is. It's just text with code examples. I'm doing this thing with like no links. I have no links in my thing also. And that's partly because I wanted something like that. I wanted like a newsletter where I can just read something and learn something in five minutes and then not click around and then bookmark stuff that I'm never going to read later and then feel like I have all these open loops in my mind. So I'm trying that. It's hard sometimes because I make an exception to link to GitHub, like Rails source code or something. But other than that, I don't have any links. So I'm enjoying that. Like I enjoy consuming written content, like programming that's written. So I'm enjoying that. But I do know that there are certain things where screencast or more interactive is much better. Writing, it becomes tedious when you have so many different moving parts and you're showing so many different files. And so I I do want to get better at screencasting. By better, I mean faster so I can do more of it. (laughs) And I think that it is a matter of practice. Maybe creating short ones, not super long ones, and just kind of put more screencast out there. So that's, yes, writing is in my comfort zone. Screencasting, I want to get to it be more in my comfort zone. Another thing that I've thought about doing is like an audio only technical content. I think that does not exist probably for a good reason. Like it's challenging to explain stuff in audio, right? But I listen to Remote Ruby, right? You all do talk about specific code that you're probably imagining while you talk about that you are working through some problem. And I find that useful. I think that is useful, but I'm trying to think about how do I make that so it's it's like consumable in a short, like if you have a five minute break or a 10 minute break, you learn something because I I want that. Like I'm able to just take a break and learn something conceptually that doesn't require me looking at a screen or looking at code. So I've tried doing that unsuccessfully. By that, I mean, I haven't even put anything out there. Like I've just tried recording and it doesn't make sense. So I'm like, okay, scratch this. I'll try again with a different topic. But I wonder what you think about that. Like, is there a need for audio technical content that you can just consume without looking at a screen? Yes. And I think the way I would do it, it's hard to talk about code. You're right. What it's a lot easier to do is to talk about the problem itself. And that naturally leads to some discussion about the architecture. But I think the problem with a lot of technical content is that without context of a problem, without like an understanding of where you may encounter this in the world or where it would be useful, it feels useless and just nothing. So yeah, I would totally listen to that. And I feel like if it was almost like a short story of I encountered this problem, here's where I encountered this problem and here's how we solved it, but in almost like an organic like narrative way, I think that would be really good. Almost like, you've ever heard Darknet Diaries? Um, No, I don't think I have. It's an InfoSec podcast that's excellent, but they do a good job of a very kind of narrative. Like they do very long stuff, but it's very narrative, but it also can get very technical. And I've learned a lot about like botnets and like, InfoSec securities through that, but it's give you a story. And like through that story, you're able to learn things in it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That does make sense. That reminds me of an idea I had a long time ago, which was you're debugging something and you always go down a journey, right? And you learn something, especially if it takes you more than like a day or two, there's always something to learn that you can share with others. So like a bug story, where you can just talk about the bug you had and how did you go about solving it and maybe invite people who had some gnarly bugs that they saw recently and like talk about that. I have lots of ideas about like podcasts and projects and things that I would do, which I haven't yet done. 
but I think that's kind of like along the lines of making it a story. So it's more sticky. Like you remember it. Yeah. The bug one is funny because I've had almost the exact same idea, but my thing was like the way I will capture the content is every time I Google something, I'll save that Google query and where I found the answer. And then kind of like at the end of the day or after I finish like fixing it, I reflect or write down what the problem was and how I resolved it and the link to where I found the solution. And I could just put that somewhere and then one day, if I encounter that again, oh, well, I remember fixing this before. So, and I, I think I titled it something like what I Googled today or something like that. But yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think it's smart. And it's kind of easy to, if you're working as a software developer, it'd be kind of easy to collect that information if you just scroll through your history. Like yeah. The yeah. small things, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be really useful for learning purposes too. If you're a junior developer and you're just looking, like you feel like, okay, how do I get from being feeling stuck to being able to solve stuff uh, myself? Listening to other people, like what were they thinking and how do they go about solving where they search for and where they try? I think that would be useful too from like that perspective. That reminds me of another idea I have, which I think is a little bit more realistic that I do want to try doing is, I know there's a lot of talk about hiring junior developers, junior Rails developers, and different problems around it and how to go about solving that or addressing that. One idea I had that I talked to actually a few people about is hiring a junior developer for your company, but then also providing them with someone who's like a contractor or someone who's like a service for the first three months to act as their full-time mentor, buddy, onboarding person that they can rely on. Because when you do join a company that has a big code base, learning that does take some time and it does take time from existing developers. And if you don't allocate that time for those developers, it becomes challenging. All those things that we've heard reasons for not hiring junior developers because they can't afford to do it. I think it, it would be kind of interesting if they had a resource they could, they could go to without feeling bad for like bothering that person. Because it's their job to be there for them and onboard them into the company. But it's not like a full-time thing. You can do it for the first few months and then they can move on. I don't know. What do you think about that based on, I know you talked to a lot of people about this particular like topic. I'm not blowing smoke when I say that's one of the smartest things I've ever heard in my life. That makes so much sense. Yeah, I have to think about that. That's a really interesting idea of having the person that they kind of go to with their problems be not one of the main engineers and it being, that's a really interesting idea. I like that. Yeah, so one of the objections that I can think of to this idea, right? Is that, well, the person who they're going to, like if it's a service that someone is providing as part of, and I can imagine being this person because I've done this right. job, right? And that's what I'm thinking about, like different ways I can use my strengths and how I can like work in some sort of a client capacity, right? So this, the objection I can think of is that, well, the outside person also doesn't know the code base and they need to be that's onboarded. The best part though. Exactly. That's, I mean, that's, that would be the best part because yeah. while they can onboard themselves probably faster, they can run into the same issues that the other person, the junior would run into and be like, oh yeah, this issue, it's not you. This place is just doing something weird. So it just, this is how you fix it, whatever. Or this issue, there is something that you could learn that it is, that's the, that's on you that you can learn this thing and they can kind of guide them in that way. So I think that would be useful. But anyway, putting something out there yeah. in the world that I think could help, but I don't know what the realistic reaction would be from people who are actually in the position to hire. I think the 
objection would be it's expensive still because of the contractor part. But I think the other benefit though, is that I think what junior developers really benefit from truly like the lasting benefit is learning how to solve problems and learning how to find the answers that they need, like where to go to find things. And so to have a contractor who doesn't know the code base either, the way I see that benefit is so much is that, okay, you get to watch a senior engineer figure out a problem. To me, that would be super beneficial to like level someone up of like, you spend like a few months with someone and they just teach you how to find the answers and like go through it together and you build that understanding there. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, not just teaching you the thing, but teaching you how to teach yourself and be self-sufficient in the future. 100%. Like I said, I feel like we could be best friends and we could probably talk forever, but we are running on time. So is there any message that you want to give out as the final thing you want to leave people with here? Going back to talking about like teaching and writing and creating content, I think one of the things that is super valuable and useful to someone who is putting themselves out there and creating content is if you have something that you read or watch that you really find useful or that you like, just tell the person that made it because that feedback is such a boost to anyone. And this is kind of advice for myself too, because I think to do it, but I don't always do it, but I would like to make it like a habit to give people feedback who are putting themselves out there and creating all this content that I've benefited from. 100%. Not echo. Exactly. I tried to think about it to try to do it because of the that I like to get it as well. So I think the more people telling, Hey, even if, blog post from like four years ago, if you just randomly hit, if I got like randomly mentioned, like, yo, this thing you put out a long time ago, just fix my issue. I would feel great about that. Yeah, totally. So doing that for other people, you know, doing to others, you put out a lot of stuff. Where can people find everything that you're doing? Yeah. So the best place right now is I have been writing consistently a Ruby newsletter, which is not just about Ruby, but about web development. And that is on my button down. So buttondown.com slash Boomi. I try to stay active on Twitter. So that might be a good place to go as well. The best way to stay in touch is if you subscribe to my newsletter or follow along. Well, we will have links to all that in show notes. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I had a lot of fun and I hope people learn something or I feel like you have a very inspirational story. Like I want to go make content now. So I'm hoping that's kind of how other people feel as well. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on and thanks for inviting me. Um, Of course. And we missed you, Julie. Yeah, I miss you, Julie. Everyone else, we'll see you back here. Same time, same great place. Bye, everybody.